Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, however, wherever, whenever you're listening. This is the Root for Wisconsin show, episode 69, David Bakhtiari. I'm Eric. Awesome. I know, right? I'm a little disappointed Ramsey's not here. Just spoiler alert, Ramsey's not here this week. Because I'm sure he'd have some jokes and some chuckles about the episode number. But I guess we're going to move right past that. So, spoiler alert, Ramsey's not here. But I'm here, Eric, Big E, producer, studio host. Joining us via Zoom, Justin. Justin, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you. We're going to get some some great talk and banter today without the distraction of Ramsey's bad takes, and we can actually get something accomplished on this show this week, Eric. <laughs> Lots to get to. We are, as always, we are broadcasting from the Minger True Value and Riverwood Gallery Studio in De Pere, Wisconsin. And like you said, Justin, a lot to get into this week. So let's start with our partners first. We got our partners over at Ray's Energy, code ROOT4 at repsports.com. New flavor about to drop again this week. You can go ahead and follow their social medias or just get your old reliable favorites there too. Code ROOT4, 15% off any order. That's code ROOT, R-O-O-T, number four, for 15% off any order. Also, our partners over at Monkey Knife Fight. Proud affiliate of Monkey Knife Fight, the official Daily Fantasy Sports partner of your Milwaukee Brewers. And with that, I mean, like I said, you know, we say it every week, but really, if you're not playing along with them, they're trying to put money in your pocket. It is the best Daily Fantasy Sports. You're not playing against computers. You're not playing against, you know, people who nerd out and play with formulas and and make all sorts of math for the sports. No, you're playing against yourself. And... If you can't beat yourself, who are you going to beat, you know? It's exactly, it's a one-on-one scenario. You need to get on Monkey Knife Fight and play. You really do. Play the contest. Put some money in your pocket. MonkeyKnifeFight.com. With that all being said, it's time to get into the episode. And we start off with, we always start off with, with what we had rooted for over the last week. That is sponsored by Fanatics. Whether your team's on top of the world or at the bottom of the league, Show your love for your team with Fanatics. Hashtag right now, big league style. Show off your favorite baseball team as we are in opening week of the MLB season. Show your Brewer gear or Ramsey, in his case, the Padres gear, whoever. Whatever your team, hashtag big league style. Justin, what had you rooted for over the last week? I've actually got a couple, Eric. I, I know in, in our uh, pre pre-talk here i said i've got one but i've got a couple my first one is uh it was such a a a great race again i'm saturday night but just the pure fact that it was saturday night i love nascar racing under the lights i love short track racing under the lights that that's where uh, i think nascar shines at its best um the racing was really good. Again, uh, this has been a theme we've said all year long. Um, and and it was at the finish with a late caution again. You have to give it to Joey Logano because he usually doesn't race this way. But he raced Byron pretty clean, gave him a little tap at the end. Um, let him know that, you know, it could come. He just, uh, in turns three and four, he couldn't really... Uh, closed the gap on Byron, and and congratulations to William Byron for uh, a second win this season. Uh, him and Rudy Fugel, his uh, crew chief, 
have really hit it off. They they come from their truck days together, have really hit it off, and, and now he's got two wins already early in the season. So rooting for that because that's a huge bonus for uh, Hendrick Motorsports. And then my second one, Eric, and I know for sure that um, this would not get the appreciation from Ramsey, but I'm rooting for these play-in games by the NBA. These games have been pretty darn good. Uh, the the Clippers and T-Wolves game last night was outstanding. Uh, Cleveland and Brooklyn was a, was a pretty good game. It, it kind of uh, got a lot better at the end when Cleveland closed the gap. Uh, but that Brooklyn team to play a, a Cleveland team that's really not playing without two of its star players um, in Colin Sexton and Jarrett Allen uh, played uh, Cleveland to a a, uh, a tough game. So uh, these games, you, you can tell the intensity that makes the NBA a little bit more watchable. We have been kind of lackadaisical on the NBA all season long. Uh, just waiting for this moment, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily the playing games, but the playoffs. And, you know, some teams might count these as playoff wins. Um, but you've got, like, the game that's on currently that I'm watching, uh, Charlotte Hornets, Jordan's team, and, and uh, the Atlanta Hawks, these are two stellar young and up and coming teams that, you know, not are necessarily at the, uh, the top of, uh, their conference, but they are teams that are going to be there for, for a while with how young and great, uh, uh, their rosters are, um, great coaching. Um, so I, I've, I've been thoroughly, uh, happy with these playing games. Yeah, no, I I did not catch the games last night. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not watching them right now. But I followed along on Twitter because I was watching the Brewers. Um, But I followed along on Twitter. And I know, you know, we say we talk about Kyrie Irving probably way more than a Wisconsin sports podcast should. I have been Mm -hmm. a big Kyrie Irving fan since his days at Duke and then his days in Cleveland with LeBron. And, you know, the guy is a little odd. I, I mean, he's a lot odd. But... He's always been just a hell of a player when he's on the court. You know, take the mindset. He's, in a way, and I'm not saying that they're comparable because they're two totally different positions and two totally different play styles, two totally different eras. But he's really the modern equivalent of Dennis Rodman in that sense. Where you just kind of put up with the the sideshow, and when he's on the court, he's one of the most valuable assets. And he was playing incredibly last night. He he started, what, seven for his first seven or something like that? He had 34 points and 12 assists, I think, last night. Yeah, incredible game from him. So I was following along with that. And then also just kind of following along with that Western Conference game. I heard an instant classic from some people. Again, I didn't watch. I believe believe at one point the T-Wolves were down 16 or something in the fourth quarter and came back and won. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, you can say what you want. You know, it's it's two teams that probably aren't going to win that first series. Really, four teams that probably aren't going to win their first series. But you never know. And that's why they right. play these. And, and that's the point of the game. So it is what it is. And enjoy the basketball. We can watch it. My root for is I've actually got two as well. Uh, first, I'm going to start off on just a on a quick note here. Um, 
Kamari McGee, former Green Bay, and I say now former, uh, standout freshman guard, has transferred in-state to play with the Wisconsin Badgers. And only, you know, the story goes, Justin, I'm not sure how much you've paid attention to this, and I know a little bit more of a vested interest for me just covering the Phoenix and working with the Phoenix Athletics, but um, just apparently the only player he had met with on his trip to Madison was Chucky Hepburn, who they play the same position, um, kind of similar game sets too, you know, a little bit, I think Mars yeah. is a little bit more undersized than Chucky is, but the only player he played or met with, and and that was all it took, and apparently they struck it, they hit it off immediately, um, and, you know, really good things came out of that meeting, enough where uh, Kamari decided to officially transfer to the University of Wisconsin. So shout out to Kamari. I, you know, hate to see him leave Green Bay. Very integral part of what I thought the future here in Green Bay was going to be, but a great get for the Badgers. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Yeah, we're definitely going to we're gonna break that down a little bit and uh, what he can bring the Badgers, uh, some of the other top transfer options for the Badgers. Um, they have now three scholarships that they have open with Kamari's uh, – commitment bringing that down one so we'll talk a little bit more about it and and what that does for the depth and and who he replaces yeah so we'll get to that later in the episode in the meantime my other route for is i was back at the ballpark on on saturday Justin. i'm not sure if you had seen that on on our my social i did see that i hope i hope you and shauna stayed warm and and kind of enjoyed the the was it windy it wasn't too, too bad wind-wise, a little bit, because we had at one point, I mean, we, we were sitting on the first baseline at one point, just kind of to stretch the legs a little bit, get a little bit of a different perspective. We took a venture out to the bullpen area with the home run porch, they call it, and just kind of mm-hmm. sat out there for a little bit, and a little bit more windy out there, and wind was blowing out from home plate, so a little bit more out there. Um pretty good day overall t-rats ended up getting the win and I, I say end up um the t-rats were were losing through the seventh inning and come the seventh inning you know it was getting a little chilly um had some you know had some stuff to do and sean and i decided we were gonna leave they were getting no hit at that point yet still justin no hitter through seven and oh my goodness and, you know, we decided, you know, there's going to be plenty of games to go to this season. Uh, very young team, but also a very fun team to watch uh, with this with this group of guys who are together in Appleton right now at the at this, the low A level, the Carolina Mudcats. This team was a never-say-die team where they won a lot of late-inning games last year. And through the weekend, and I haven't really – I think they had gotten rained out today, but – Two walk-offs this weekend, including Saturday, which was became opening day due to the uh, rain that had been through the area Thursday and Friday. They rallied for two runs in the eighth. Or no, excuse me. Two runs in the seventh. Or well, they had one in the sixth, two in the seventh, two more in the eighth to tie the game at 5-5. Five to five. They had given up back the lead into the ninth, tied it up again in the bottom of the ninth, and then walked it off in the 10th. So just, you know, one of those teams, great team win for them. They walked it off one of the two games on Sunday as well. 
Um, so just a fun time to be back at the ballpark. We'll also be at the ballpark in Milwaukee Friday, so we'll have some content coming from that too. Um, right. Either on my personal or the Root for Wisconsin page, or both. We'll see. Um, but back at American Family Field on Friday, and I'm so excited to be back uh, there as well. But with all that said, we go from the positives to the negatives, and we go to our Tyler Hero Noogie of the Week. And Justin, I'll let you start this one off as well. This one, I know Ramsey and I would have a nice little conversation about this one, but my Noogie of the Week is for sure, hands down, th- this might be dumpster fire of the year, but mine is Ty Gibbs. What Ty Gibbs did this past weekend now, it, it, for his actions, let me break it down for you. He he got all mad at Sam Mayer, number one uh, driver for Junior Motorsports. Um, Sam Mayer flat out drove through him. Like, there, there was no ifs, ands, or buts, or arguments about him. And... Uh, Probably could have been upset. The problem is, is Ty Gibbs can't act like that the week after he does it to somebody else the week before to get the win. And not only that, his teammate, he does it to. Um, so break it down even further. They get to pit road. Uh, Ty Gibbs is is bumping and hitting him on, on the actual track. Then they get to, to pit road. Ty Gibbs hits him. Um, in the ass end again um, on pit road when there are people standing around on pit road um, and then gets out and starts an altercation with him but does not take off his helmet Eric he starts a fight and doesn't take off his helmet in a real bitch move in my opinion uh, and then starts swinging he starts swinging gives Sam Air a black eye uh Connects real hard with him a couple times. Gets called into the NASCAR. And shame on NASCAR for this, dude. They could get a noogie out of the week, too. Uh, only giving the dude a $15,000 fine. The, their excuse is this is a blanket uh, a blanket fine. We have to treat the, the big dogs like we would treat the small dogs. Uh, underfunded teams. Uh, a $15,000 fine is kind of a blanket fine. This dude needed to be suspended for a game, for, for a race, in my opinion. Uh, that uh, overreaction, overdramatization of, of what actually happened, uh, you could get out, you can have a conversation with the dude, and you can, you know, get, get a little pushing and shoving. But he was throwing hands at the dude. He was throwing hands hard. Um, and, and to only get what he got, it shows a little bit of favoritism in my point. I don't I don't like it at all. Um, and I don't like Ty Gibbs at all. I think he's a little baby. Um, and, and and if you're going to dish it, you need to take it. And he didn't display that over two weeks here. Yeah, no. And, and I didn't catch most of it. You know, I didn't catch the race. And I, I did see that on social media. My first thought was awfully bold to go after a guy still wearing your helmet. And, you know, I really can't talk too, too much because I know Jeff Gordon had done that once in the past, but it never really escalated to fist being thrown. So, you know, Jeff's not popping guys in the face where he can't return one either. So I'm going to take the high road on that mm-hmm. one. But it just, yeah, I, I got to say I'm I'm not a big fan of that. Um, and, you know, 
when you, you know the, just the reality of the situation when you've got that kind of target on your back of being Joe Gibbs' grandkid, you've kind of got to face the music with that too. It's it's not necessarily you know always fair that he gets as much criticism as he might sometimes. You know, same thing with like Austin and Ty Dillon. They get the criticism of the Silver Spoon and that this and this that and the other thing of being Richard Childress's grandkids. Blah blah blah. But it's just the reality of the situation. I mean, here we are talking about him doing something really boneheaded. And in a way, he kind of gets a pass because of of who he's related to. So you can't have yeah. the good that, without the bad, too. So I, I'll agree with you on that one. Um, you know, the, the racing part is what it is. But then when you put, you know, potentially pit crews and fans in danger and pit road after a race and... Again, going out there without your hel- or with your helmet still on, and yeah, just just one of those not not loving that. It was terrible. It was it was it, he looked like a little baby, like a spoiled little baby, and that's what he acted like. And and, and quite frankly, that's what he is. He's a spoiled little baby, and uh, I, I that made me not a fan of his. But in the same right, Eric. We can't have the good without the bad, and we need guys that are the bad, right? We need to have that that heel that nobody roots for. So he, while I hate him, he might be good for NASCAR. Yeah, no, and and you're absolutely right. I think every sport, especially NASCAR, needs a good villain. I don't know if he's the one. I still think Kyle Busch is going to reign onto that, and Kyle Busch is an excellent bad guy. I don't think Ty Gibbs is there yet. I don't know if he's trying to be Kyle Busch. And try to be the bad guy, but yeah, yeah just it, two totally different you know levels of talent there too. So I don't know if I'm ready to anoint him with that crown yet. I do want to go back here in just a quick second and, and do one more quick root for it. I do apologize here, Justin, but uh, before I get into my noogies, because I have some strong ones here too, I gotta say in the world of baseball here, one of those cool human moments that you know you just can't make up. Former Brewer, now Tampa Bay Ray, Brett Phillips uh, took the spotlight last night and Brett Phillips was the favorite or is the favorite player of this, uh, this eight year old girl who has cancer in Tampa Bay. And they invited her to the throw the first pitch of the game last night, invited her to stay for the game. Brett Phillips was able to catch the first pitch for her too. It was in the starting lineup. And then they were talking about this with her on TV. They had done a TV interview with her, um, talking about the first pitch and she had given Brett Phillips a wristband, you know, one of her, her wristbands, for her cause and her, for her second battle of cancer. And she loves Brett Phillips. You know, if you remember him, he got that infectious laugh, great human being really funny on Twitter too. Um, but once you know, Justin, while they're interviewing her about her love of Brett Phillips, Brett Phillips is batting and hits a monster home run. I did see that. So I, I had to shout that out here because the positives of the baseball world are also going to go here with the negatives of the baseball world. A couple things here that drew my ire from the baseball world. First of all, we're not even one weekend, and I got to talk shit about the Chicago Cubs. And Wilson Contreras being a little, you know, same kind of thing, spoiled little bitch when it comes to being a Chicago Cub. And always, you know, he leans in these pitches. He dives into the ball so that he can get that free on base percentage, which whatever, you know, do your thing. And then he gets his feathers all ruffled because he got hit by a pitch. He's gotten hit by pitches however many times against the Brewers, whatever. He leads the league and hit by pitch because he dives into it. He wears that big elbow guard so that he kind of can continue doing what he does 
and then gets all pissed off and butthurt about it. Well, once you know, Justin, Saturday, the escalation of issues had occurred, and Cubs pitcher went after uh, Andrew McCutcheon for the Brewers. The really, the I mean, we'll talk more about him in a minute. Really outstanding get so far. Granted, less than a weekend, but just wanted to toot the horn on that one here a little early. But he. He, they throw at him, and it's so blatantly obvious where Wilson Contreras didn't even move the glove to fake like he was trying to catch the pitch, like it wasn't on purpose at all. And, of course, then you have all the Cubs fans bitching and moaning about how often Contreras gets hit and how the Brewers you know, never face the justice for it. The Brewers have gotten hit by the Cubs 26 times since 2020, including McCutcheon getting hit at that moment that caused the bench-clearing incident, as well as Christian Yelich actually getting hit later in the game, too. So the Brewers have gotten hit by the Cubs pitchers 26 times, which I believe since 2020 is more than any other individual team against any individual team. And then they go and bitch and bitch and bitch on Twitter. So I had to, you know, throw that under the bus. My other... Is there an, op- go ahead. Is there an opposite stat to that, Eric? How many times have the Brewers hit the, the Cubs? I, I'd have to look for it. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, and I'm sure the Cubs fans can talk about it because I think... I think Contreras has gotten pretty close to almost that many times too, but it's been pretty equal in all things considered over his career. So I'd have to look into that. I don't know exactly how many times it's reversed, but really if you look into how often Contreras gets hit and where he gets hit, it's very often. It was him and uh, Anthony Rizzo uh, with with Rizzo was often like in the leg and the foot because of how close he was to the plate and his stance. Um, with with Contreras, it's always in the the elbow area because he dives into the pitch. Uh, so very you know very clear you know and there the numbers, even saying they're pretty close in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't necessarily a fair comparison. When you look at how each individual case happens, where almost all the time that the Brewers get hit, it's purely out of revenge. And revenge is such a weird word for it because it's it's almost always on like incidental and if not initiated by the Cubs in the first place anyway. So just my take on that. It's probably not mm-hmm. the right take, but it's a biased take nevertheless. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So that's that's one side of my noogie. My other side of the noogie, and I know this is something you're actually probably going to agree with. And I'm kind of I'm a little bit upset that I'm taking this route. But I'm gonna I'm gonna justify it by this. So earlier today, Clayton Kershaw had a perfect game going through seven innings. He had 80 pitches, and Dave Roberts pulled him. And I know Justin on these very podcast waves, we had discussed the the no hitter for Corbin Burns versus the combined no hitter, etc. We each had different stands on it. It was a different, totally different time of the season, but kind of the same rationale. Where at that time of the season, you're a week away from the playoffs. Nothing mm-hmm. you're really playing for. At this point, it's you know really his second outing. Short in spring training, I get it. So I'm going to justify my my take here and kind of my flip on this. We, we are at a point in the season where if this was a no-hitter, I would probably be on the same side of it where I was with Corbin Burns. I mean... No hitters, while still a very rare feat, happen pretty 
regularly, at least a few a year. And Clayton Kershaw already has one. I know you always want to be the exclusive company to have two, but he does already have one. And that makes this a little bit different. The perfect game for the game of baseball is one of the, I, I believe it is the rarest feat in all of professional sports. To the point where he had that through seven and you pulled him without, you know, it's not like he had given up a walk to lose the perfect game and still had the no hitter intact. You pulled him at 80 pitches where you very realistically could have kept him still under 100 pitches and gotten the job done if he was able to, you know, go out and do his thing. So, not a big fan of that move. Well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Kershaw, he's coming off of of somewhat of an injury, uh, like an elbow strain or something of that nature. He, he, he Did he have a full spring training or something like that? I believe he had a full spring training, but I do believe he had... Um, an injury that he had to recover from throughout the offseason. So I will, I will grant that as well. So that he's on a pinch, a pitch count for a reason. Um, I don't know if I'd say that's why. I mean, like I said, I get it in that element, but at the same time, like I said, just the just the the perfect game angle is where you lose me. It's a, that is a tough. That is a tough, tough sell. Um. Especially this early in the season, you have all you have you know five thousand more games that you can rest them and skip a start or or whatever. I, I'm I'm totally in agreement with you. Send a guy out there and let him let him go for it. I don't know that he makes it another two innings, not throwing twenty pitches, but. We'll see. So here's... Yeah, we would have seen. I, I don't know. I can't see if he had surgery or not in the offseason. Um, he had no ligament damage last offseason. So he had to have an MRI uh, last offseason. Had no ligament damage, was put on the injured list, and was ruled out of the 2021 postseason. After, actually, ironically, you know, after playing the Brewers on October 1st in a two-inning start. Um, yeah, so... But did come into the game and really... He said he agreed with the decision because he had not been built up due to the shortened spring training. So I don't know if it was necessarily the injury versus just the shortened spring training. So I get it. I think he's trying to kind of, I don't know if he's just saying the right things to give peace to everything or Or if if he actually believes that it might've been, but I got to say, I I'm not a big fan of that move. So that was my, my baseball ones and just a quick one. I'm going to go with, with both of you guys. And I know I would given you a little bit of shit about this in our pre-show meeting. Oh, but for both goodness. of you, Ramsey and Justin, to mock my mock draft, you know, calling it a jinx. Oh, I know what's not going to happen. That being Ramsey and, and our loyal listener, Zach Ledubek. Um, and then also, you know, you taking the route that you did, Justin, on, on Twitter and our, and our conversation we had on Messenger. And yet, here we are, where we are two days later, and I don't have another mock draft from either one of you guys. I honestly, Eric, I, I know that you, you're going to try and come after me. I'm a busy man. I've got things going on. I I don't. I I can't. I can't just go around doing. Uh, let's be real. I just didn't go do it. All right. I didn't get it done. Um. 
kind of I really kind of did get busy over here the next couple after I bashed you on your time. I didn't think it was terrible. I really liked two of your picks. I didn't like uh, the other three of those picks. Uh, I really don't want to pick a guard or a tackle in the first round uh, offensively. Um, just for the 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 pure fact that we have the offensive line set. Like, I don't want to go into the offensive line or into the the next season not giving Yash Nijman the the right tackle spot opportunity. I don't want to go in to the 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 next season not giving John Runyon or or uh, the kid from Old Miss. Uh, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. He played great all season long. Um, the the rookie from Ole Miss, Royce Newman, giving them, the, yeah, Royce Newman, not giving them the opportunity at right guard. We already have center, left guard, left tackle. That right side might be a little iffy, but John Runyon played outstanding last year at left guard. Right, Royce Newman played outstanding at right guard last year. Yeah, we've got a question mark at at right tackle. But Yash Nijman played outstanding at right tackle. So to draft an offensive lineman in the first round, for me, I don't I don't like that at all. Um, and you could probably take that argument of what I said and apply it to to where I think they could attack uh, the defensive line. Right? Mm-hmm. We just signed Jaron Reed. We have Dean Lowry. We have, uh, you know, Kenny Clark, the great Kenny Clark. Um, I think that's more of a need. We need a safety. We need, you know, who knows if we're going to sign Amos again. Uh, I don't think that anything on the line makes you think that we need to draft one year ahead, right? Unless unless you're really thinking you're going to get out of the Bakhtiari contract or you're not going to be able to re-sign Elton Jenkins. To me, those are those are things that are probably not going to happen. Um, wide receiver first was a great pick. Wide receiver in the second was a great pick. I'd like Leo Chanel was a great pick. So I, you know, I may not have liked the people, but I, I, the, the one I really didn't like was the guard in the second round or in the first round, the second, first round pick. I can concede that, and we'll talk more about mock drafts in the later part of the episode as we go kind of closer to the draft. So just want to throw a little shade at you guys and have a little fun with that. So with Justified that— Justified myself. <laughs> sure, if you say so. <laughs> um, <laughs> with that in mind, a uh, couple—we'll you know, we'll get into the episode here. Uh, we got through our positives or negatives, and time to go around the state of Wisconsin and catch everyone up on what's going on and what we think of what's going on. Uh, so first, you know, I'll get the, the one out of the way that Justin, I'm sure, wants to hear very little about, or maybe more that Ramsey's not here and is not try to act cool, but uh, Brewers off to not their best start, you know, I'll be honest, a little bit of a lackluster start here, um, has been concerning mm-hmm. a little bit for some of the, the elements of the things that we're see- seeing here to this point. Um, you know, one thing I have not loved was up until last night and even last night, uh, this extended into last night, and hopefully that you know maybe we're riding the tide here. How elusive the third out has been for a number of these games. Um, I believe all well last night included, but all three losses to this point and last night's win 
have been, you know, free runs at the end of the inning, whether it be walks, you know, lots of walks too, not being able to get, like I said, that close out of the inning. Um, and you can blame that on, on the shortened spring training. Um, Saturday, you know, 9 nothing lost the Cubs. Offense didn't execute. Same thing with a 2-0 loss on Monday to the Orioles. But um, you're going to have games like that, too. Maybe it's just a little bit more magnified here at the beginning of the season. But, uh, man, I tell you, just a just little bit of a rocky start here. But with a veteran-led team, you might see that. You know, that's kind of happening where you didn't get that ramp up. So I, I will... I I don't I, you know I don't I don't think I you know this is me I don't follow it very close in fact I haven't watched a Brewers game yet uh, shame on me but to be fair they are a pretty um, veteran laden team with with Adamus and you and you got Kane and and Yelich and and even Talez he, he's what it, what year is he entering? His fourth or fifth year? He's been around. So it might take, yeah, it might take it might take a, a bit um, to get it. Um, but there there are two questions I have coming out of this, and one of them was an interesting uh, a question that I heard on your other employer um, last Friday <clears throat> was. How long are are they going to be willing to keep Yelich in the three hole spot, uh, and and not try to move him around and, and get him into a spot to where he can positively affect the lineup, uh, whether it's him scoring runs or or being a tough out at the end of a lineup, or because right now he and realistically for the better part of two two years he has not been a factor at the three hole spot so i think it's really going to depend you know there's a couple factors with when you set a lineup and especially that three spot um you know one reason that ryan braun succeeded so early in his career playing that you know batting on that three spot was you had prince fielder at the four and if you had anybody on when when braun came up they really didn't want to get to fielder so they had to pitch to braun and that's probably the best comparison I can really, you know, kind of refer to. So it's not mm-hmm. just based on Christian Yelich's uh, talent and his, you know, where he's at with him um, as he actually just strikes out here as we're going through the episode. Uh, to this point, though, I mean, Christian Yelich, I don't want to say bounce back season where, you know, we're three games, you know, five games in, five and a half games in, almost six. But uh, where we are to this point, Yelich hitting 278. He'd been at 294 before he just struck out. But, you know, that average is going to fluctuate so much during the season or this part of the season anyway. Uh, but to this point, Yelich has had, I believe, I'm going to try to you know, see if I can find the, the exact numbers here for you. Uh, has been pretty good throughout the year. He had a frozen rope double last night uh, off the wall that missed a home run by probably about a foot and a half, two feet. Um and, you know, the on-base percentage has been incredible, too. Uh, you know, to this point, his on-base percentage, I'd have to, you know, again, just trying to find these uh, stats here. And, again, really early in the season, but is above his career average. Um, so above that already here, and again, really early in the season, so I don't want to put too much weight into these stats. 
but he's been on base. You know, he's reaching. He just doesn't have necessarily those power numbers. My only pro, I guess, to answer your question, you know, aside from, you know, depends on what the lineup's doing around him, is I don't know where else you can put him. Um, you could maybe experiment uh, with there, maybe. There, there has been. Yeah, there has been some some talk about maybe moving him up to the two-hole spot, even getting some leadoff spot. Um, but the only other option really that has been bantered about was the seven, was batting him seventh in the lineup. So there, I think there's options. Yeah, I, I think the two spot, if you can get a consistent enough lineup around, uh, would be one of those spots I would probably explore. I don't know if you can take Colton Wong out of the lead because he is just the Colton Wong is the true leadoff hitter by every definition, and he's not going to have that pop and power like we have seen Yelich have. So I I think two would be a good spot for him. I could you could probably make the argument for seven two. I don't know if I want to go that route because I don't you know I don't know where Christian's headspace is at with that and if he could you know make that adjustment to go to seven. Um, you know, you, you know that can be very. Part of it's going to be on him to just come up with the decision himself. You know, right? If he's not going to, if he's not going to decide to, to, uh, you know, make a go of it at the three hole spot, he has to figure it out and and be a man about the situation and say, hey, coach, man, we got to do something for the team. We, you, you've got to move me either down, or I've I've got to find a spot for 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 us to succeed, and, and and so I can help this team. Right. No, I agree. Like I said, I just I'm curious. I really don't. I guess I don't have that answer right now because um, you know again we're we're really early in the season. I'm really curious on you know where everything's going to shake out. Um, I do like having Adamas in that two spot. I'd be curious on what a switch of them two would look like too. Um, you know, putting Adamas in the two or in the three, putting Yelich at the, the back at the two, because really, if you look at where Yelich succeeded his most as a Brewer was in that two spot, where you'd go yes. Kane, Yelich, Braun, and then you know the rest of the lineup. So I'd be really curious on what that impact would be. I think you know, really, Willie Adamas is a true two spot hitter. But if that's what it takes to maybe move him to that spot, or maybe put McCutcheon in the leadoff and put him there, or maybe put McCutcheon at the three, you know, at the three and him at maybe the four. I, you know, I don't know what that true answer is. I think right now, you know, we're still seeing as to what the bounce back is going to be. Um, you know, Yelich to this point, granted, again, six games in and almost seven or almost six games in, five in for sure. To this point, you know, we really, you know, we've seen the ball be hit hard. We've seen the singles and the doubles down the line and going opposite field. So I don't want to say, it, you know, it's too early to say he's back, you know, to normal. And maybe that mm-hmm. three spot is a good spot for him right now, but we have to see, you know. And I, I think that's my main takeaway from that. Uh, what's your other one, Justin? My other one is the, is it concerning for the starting pitching that has not been, you know, very great to start off the year. The bullpen has been pretty good, but the starting pitching hasn't been spectacular. Like it's, uh, and I know that we're, we're talking about one start, but I think it's more concerning that it was, you know, your big three didn't really have great starts. 
so I I don't want to say I'm I'm ready to put the panic button out yet on on the starting rotation or anything like that because I mean knock on wood here I don't want to jinx anything. Um, but Corbin has been back to, you know, true Corbin Burns stuff tonight. Um, you know, he's through, he'll probably hopefully be through six here in just a moment, but, um, no runs allowed this thus far again, knock on wood, but you know, shortened spring training. Usually, you know, baseball is such a weird sport where it's in a way, it's kind of like the NFL in the sense that. In the NFL, you know, usually defense has the advantage in the first part of the season, and then the offenses catch up as you go later through the season. Baseball usually mm-hmm. is a lot of the same under a normal year, where pitching is so far ahead of batting, and as you kind of ease into the season and you know get into the later months of the season, usually the batting comes, you know, catches up, and you know, you get established, you get trends, and you can see what's going on. With the shortened spring training. I think that a it levels the field a lot more than people are going to give it credit for. You know, even talking about Kershaw going, uh, he was perfect through seven, had thirteen strikeouts, but just where he is pitch count wise, you know, you've really got to be really careful. And with anybody this point in the season, especially if you're a right. team like the Dodgers or the Brewers for this that matter, um, who have big aspirations for the season. Um, right. And, and, you know, really just haven't gotten that full buildup. You know, they, you can pitch all you want at home or at the local high school ballpark, but it's not the same as your, your in-season buildup when you're in spring training to get to the regular season. And the fact that it was, you know, literally cut in half of what that normal buildup would be, I think you're going mm-hmm. to see a lot of pitchers struggle in this early part. I think, I know, Garrett Cole has been struggling his first two outings. So I don't think it's just a Brewers problem. And I think that's my maybe the saving grace at this point is that, you but know, the, bull, the bullpen has been great, though, hasn't it? Um, start. I think the trend started, you know, the first two games were a little rough as of, I would say, comfortably on Sunday and more specific uh, Monday and Tuesday. We've seen a lot of that bullpen, even even my guy, Devin Williams, last night put himself in a jam. Had the bases loaded, no outs, and then struck out the side. Uh, found his command and got through it. So, you know, he's he's had two outings this season. Haters had two outings now. Uh, hopefully we can get, you know, either three tonight or maybe give them an off night. And hopefully, you know, because Corbin, again, hopefully we can get through six here and then have a short, uh, you know, maybe go to some of these other guys who haven't gotten a whole lot of action yet and save – uh, Devin and Hader for the homestand coming up against the Cardinals, but we'll see what happens here. Um, but yeah, they, they've gotten, you know, the bullpen's been pretty good. We've seen some great stuff out of Aaron Ashby. We've seen, uh, you know, kind of some up and down stuff from guys like Cousins and uh, some of the other kind of middle guys. Boxberger's been, you know, kind of back to early 2022 or 2021 form, excuse me. And then Devin and Josh have really, you know, kept their end of the bargain too. So, you know, really, really fun to watch in this team. And once they kind of find their stride and, you know, again, that really weird to think about where the Brewers have come, where when you look at the superstars of the team, it's it's guys like Burns, Freddie, Woodruff, who are all still like in their rookie deals yet. Technically Adamas is too. You know, 
the faces of this franchise outside of Christian Yelich and, you know, to a lesser extent, Lorenzo Cain are so young, but their roster itself is so veteran. You know, you look mm. around the infield, you've got guys, you know, Colton Wong, uh, Robert Telez has been around for a little while. Uh, Keston here is a young guy who's been, you know, seems like he's been here for a while because he came up so early in his career. Uh, the two catchers between Narvaez and Caratini have been around. Um, Mike Brasso's, you know, gone around the majors quite a bit. So you'll, you've got a very veteran heavy lineup, but with young faces of the franchise, I think that's the ideal spot for a franchise to be and mm-hmm. just make it all blend together and, and hope everybody yeah. kind of fits their role. Hunter Renfro, another veteran guy. So yeah. How, how has he been to the start of the season? Uh, Very quiet in the sense of, you know, He's produced like last night, RBI double when they needed it the most, and they had a really bad um, second or third inning last night, but they answered back and he had an RBI double. So, you know, when he's played and, you know, just how loaded this outfield is between McCutcheon, Kane, Yelich, Renfro, and, and uh, Tyrone Taylor, he's stepped up when he's needed to. I mean, again, five and a half games in, but. He's a guy that if the if he can produce about his career numbers, he's an addition, an excellent addition. Um, thus far, Andrew McCutcheon has been probably the MVP of this team, offensively speaking. Anyway, he's been incredible. Yeah. Uh, great get to this again. Five. Has he played in. in the field at all? I don't believe so. I think he's been primarily serving in that DH role. Okay, but I, I could be wrong on that. I'd have to look. Like I said, I haven't been able to watch a game. So, so good, good insight, good info. I, I think they're going to turn it around here. A series against the Orioles is just what the doctor ordered. You said they're winning tonight so far? Thus far, through six, they are up to nothing. Barn burner. Must be super exciting to watch. Both those two runs are scored in the second inning, too, by the way. Oh, God. <laughs> All did right. you take a nap? I, I did not. I've been, I've been doing the podcast and you know, got home from work, turned the game on, had a little dinner, and here we fired up the podcast. So I've been go, go, go. So I've not had time for a nap, Justin. So you're missing a great basketball game, you know, where things happen. We're up and down the court, and there's fouls. There's it's shooting. a 15-point game. Or 14-point game. Moaning at people. It's a good game. I'll live. Anyway, Badger report time. Justin, what do you have for us on the Badgers? Do you want to go football, basketball first? Uh, Football, there isn't too much to really talk about football-wise. They they, uh, got some in-state walk-on commitments. Um that will connect with this year's recruiting class. Um, It sounds as if uh, they're going to have a a nice little true competition for the number two quarterback spot between Deacon Pia Hill and uh, Chase Wolf, who has been the, the second string quarterback now for all four years, basically of his career. Um, DKP Pia Hill um, comes in with a huge arm, was uh, highly touted, but late recruit um, coming out of high school. 
uh, in California was uh, a two-star early on and jumped to a three-star and then jumped to a four-star real late in the process, uh, spurned some teams that uh, were coming on strong, namely UCLA. Um, it sounds like the secondary is starting to take shape a little bit. Uh, the, the cornerback transfer from um, UCLA, Jay Shaw, is, is proven well. Uh, and on the offensive side of the ball, the the uh, wide receiver room is looking um, a little bit different, a little bit more athletic, a little bit taller and stronger. Um, lots of uh, I'm hearing a lot a lot of good news out of the kid that came from. He also transferred from UCLA. Kiantes, uh, I can't remember his last name. It's slipping my mind, but he's had they've hit the him and Mertz have connected on a, a couple, um, maybe even five uh, 50 yard bombs over the top of, of uh, Jim Leonard's defense. So sounds like they might have something there. Uh, one of the spots to look forward um, as the spring game is coming up uh, soon will be what's happening at that tight end spot. Um, they have recruited well there, but it, it sounds like in true Wisconsin fashion, the leader in the clubhouse for tight end number one is going to be a former walk-on in Jack Eschenbach. Um, they, they've got a kid that came in that was a four-star. They've got... They've, they've got a number of questions at that spot, one of which uh, I don't know in, in true, and this is this might be one of the biggest uh, adjustments from adding a Bobby Ingram to your offensive side of the ball, um, is what are they going to do with the fullback situation? There are some rumblings that they're going to to move a touch to like the H back uh, version of what a fullback would be. Um, so tight end fullback kind of combo, kind of like what Josiah DeGuara is for, for the Packers. That's also a, a big important spot for the Badgers. Um, as they came into this offseason without a true um, recruited fullback uh, first year of that in a number of years so there's a couple questions on each side of the ball uh, Bobby Ingram's son Dean Ingram that switched from cornerback to wide receiver he's going to be the slot receiver has uh, been all over the headlines um, is really uh, flashing in that spot, so I'd I'd expect some big things out of him too. Hell yeah! And then Badger basketball. Basketball wise, we've got we've got one big thing to really kind of talk about, don't we, Eric? Is, we do. Is, is your buddy there, uh, Kamari McGee, committed to the Badgers? And this happened yesterday, I believe. It officially broke, I believe. Right? I think yeah, I think it was yesterday. 
Um, so a huge get uh, because I think the day before that, the news broke that uh, former Wisconsin Badgers guard Lauren Bowman, who had been such an important, actual, real important part of of what they do and, and improved in their last game when they really missed him. He transferred to Oakland, uh, which is which is good for him. He, he's faced a number of uh, issues uh, health-wise and then um, some personal family issues that needed to be worked out. And So he gets to play closer to home. He's not a direct uh, liability to the Badgers as far as a conference player or anything like that. But to add Kamari McGee, who started – he started almost every game, right? Did he start every game? I don't GB? think he started every game. I think he might have sat, you know, or come off the bench the first couple games. Um, and I think he might have had an injury bug there too, where he didn't start. A, you know, he might not have played a few games due to injury or illness. Okay. But I believe every almost every game he played, he started almost. Okay. okay. Well, his last five games, he really lit lit it up. Um, Multi-time Horizon League Freshman of the Year. Yeah, seventeen point six points a game his last five games. I think he, uh, I think he was a, above seven assists a game in that stretch too. So he he really started to to flash um, at the end of the season, and probably is what led him to believe that he could jump a level. It's a huge get depth wise. Uh, the Badgers only had one commit coming in out of the high school ranks uh, this year uh, as a freshman, and, and you know the way the Badgers recruit. Um, Chucky Hepburn is kind of the anomaly. Uh, Johnny Davis was kind of the anomaly. Uh, they don't really depend on freshmen. Johnny Davis more so last year uh, than this year as a sophomore, but Chucky Hepburn, you know, there, there was some kind of crazy stat out there. Like, he was the first freshman to start at point guard. He was the first, first freshman, freshman to start at point guard in their first in like 30 game years. since Devin Harris. Yeah, well, not, not 30 years, but 20. Right. Or 15, something like that. So it was a huge deal. And Now, Kamari McGee is not going to come in and start. He's not going to be a starter for the Badgers, but he's going to be a big minutes guy for the Badgers. Um, he is going to to run the second. He's going to head the second rotation, and he's going to do it for the next three years. And he'll get some uh, time on the court side-by-side side with Chucky uh, as they try to develop into something different there. Yeah, uh, big get for the Badgers. I, like I said, a little, you know, obviously sad note as an alum of Green Bay and someone who covers the team. But a big get for the Badgers. Um, yeah, and I'm really curious on, on you know, how, you know, it really speaks to him as a, as a young adult going from a, part, a space where he knew he was going to be in a very significant role with Green Bay. And, I, you know, I really kind of, again, it sucks as a Green Bay Phoenix fan to know what could have been or, you know, what – you could see kind of going down the future had he stuck it, you know, stayed. I want to say stuck it out because I don't want to put a negative 
spin on at that? At this point, it is. At this point, Eric, I mean, we've talked about it. We've touched on it. It really looks like stick it out is, is the thing that you should say. Something is going on there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really... I don't know if it's it's just culture and you you know if it's just you know the with the the way that the transfer portal is where you get that free one and a lot of guys just looking for that next stop you know they come to Green Bay they use it as that stop and they go on to the next and go on bigger and better I I really don't know what it is oh. um you know one thing we haven't seen Will Ryan do a whole lot of up till this point has been using to get you know veteran guys from the transfer portal. He's had players go into it, but has not seen the comebacks. Um, you know we've talked you know we've talked off podcast about some of the you know some of the JUCO guys and second level guys that they've had coming in. Um, some bigger you know I guess bigger ish gets from that world. Um, now including now Zane Short, the brother of. Incoming recruit Donovan Short from Denmark, correct? Correct. Uh, so just another, you know, body I guess to have on on the roster. That's really what it is at this point. So, and a guy that yeah, you know I'm... maybe keeps keeps a guy like you know someone as talented you know that you hope that Donovan Short is maybe it keeps him in the program for more than a year. Well, one could hope. Um, because there's some, uh, you know, I hate to say it because I want I, I want GB to succeed, but there's something there's something in the water going on over there, or something because they're losing players left and right. Um, and Will Ryan's going into his third year, and you would think that he'd have a solidified roster in today's world. And with his name um, going into his third season, that has played multiple years for him, multiple years in that system. So, I I think it's worrisome. I, I would to, definitely uh, agree. At this point, I mean, you you lose guys who you know rumor uh, you know granted it's just a rumor mill, but that you have been under the impression that we're locks for next year. One wheel falls off, and suddenly. You know, you get commit or transfer some guys like Emmanuel Ansong who followed Coach Ryan from Wheeling. So I don't, I don't, that's why I almost don't think it's a Coach Ryan issue because you had a guy who followed him from here and, you know, played a significant role in his offense. And so I don't, I don't know what the issue is. You know, I, I don't, I guess I'm not close enough to the program where I can say, you know, if I, if I know it's a coaching issue or if I know it's a coaching staff issue. Or maybe it's, you know, I don't want to necessarily throw blame into the athletic department, but I don't know if it's something with the athletic departments either. Or if it's truly just an issue of how little Green Bay as a university, maybe it's how little they embrace that athletic program in, or the, the men's basketball program. I, I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a conversation maybe worth having. At some point or another, I, I guess I just I wish I had that answer for you, Justin, or at least a speculation, because you can point out so many different things and so many different instances of you yeah. know things that you can point to, but also kind of contradict it too. You know, you can look be- at you can look at coaching staff because you had you know you lost. Um, oh God, who he left? He got released from the program middle of the year, but. 
um, local kid too who had come back to Wisconsin. Oh, the kid from Kakana. Yes. I can't remember his name either. Lin? No, it's not Lindsay. Don Donovan. No. You know what I'm talking about, though. Yeah, I know the guy you're talking about. But you look at that aspect. You look at, you know, maybe it's a coaching issue, but he was, you know, the the reports that came out was it was discipline issues. So maybe it's a totally different standard. <laughs> Who knows if maybe it's an issue of just not, maybe it's Coach Ryan not being a 2022 coach and what these guys are used to from the AAU circuit or whatever. Maybe he's too old school mm-hmm. like his dad. I, I truthfully, I don't know. Um, you know, we've gotten such high word and high praise from, some of the top coaches in college basketball, Tony Bennett, uh, Dick Bennett, both speaking out on on how great of a coach Coach Ryan is. But until you build that success and build that program, you know it's kind of hard to rest on those laurels of being the the tough some bitch who comes down rules with an iron fist when you're not winning. You know, okay. it, it losing. You know, they always say winning covers a lot of warts, but losing breeds contempt. So. Don- Donovan Ivory. Thank you. Thank you. That was going to bother me for a long time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you look at, you know, like I said, you look at, is it a coaching issue? Is it a, you know, is it a culture issue? I don't think Manny Ansong transfers from Wheeling University, unless he's just that hungry for a a Division I role. I don't think he transfers with a coach to a totally different part of the country in a very small mid-major if it's not a good coaching staff or a good coaching, you know, squad. I, I don't, you know, you can rule that out or maybe kind of contradict that side of things. You can, maybe it's the athletic department. Maybe it's, maybe it's an, another new AD. You know, I've had nothing but good things to say about the current AD. I know that there had been some, um, some issues with the previous couple ADs now. So who knows what the issue is there? Maybe it's a, Maybe it's even the academic side of things. Maybe it's a combination of all the above. I I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's got to be something. Be interesting. It'd be interesting. Um, um, journalistic insight that I'm sure somebody has tried to look into, but I don't know that they're getting the whole story. So there's got to be something. There's. Seems deep, like like a like it should be a. There, I, it's hard to put your tongue on it, Eric. It's, yeah, it really is. You don't cause... you don't you don't see. I mean, the transfer portal has changed the the way things have gone in NCA basketball, but even what's happening to GB right now, you don't see what's happening to GB to to any other team in the country really it's alarming it's definitely odd i i you know maybe it's just you know maybe it's just truly that's more magnified for us here and you know maybe we just don't see it as much in other schools because we don't have that same perspective i don't know um from that side of things but what i will say is you know you there's so many different angles to the story you know to what the story could be you know even going to the WFRV, Ber- I believe it was Burke Griffin who had wrote it. I want to give proper accreditation that I'd shared a couple of weeks back about Green Bay trying to capture even the Green Bay fans. You know, there's a, a joke around the program 
of you know when they play at the rush center where they get maybe 1500 tickets sold and it's you know that's a 10,000 seat arena and you know it's dressed like a red chair night is the joke so you have you don't have you know you're missing something with the fans the community you're missing something you know clearly something's off with the players too you know they don't market those games very well either right so you're I missing mean, something there. You're missing something with, um, with the players. Clearly, you know they're they're leaving at, really, like you said, alarming clips, where we've had you know three straight seasons where Coach Ryan's basically go, having to go into a season with a whole new squad. And yes. you know maybe it's you know you look at, like I said, you look at attendance. You look at, um, you know the rest of the Horizon League where. You know they're they've never been in the top half of attendance, but they've never been you know towards the bottom either. You look at maybe you know you've got people pissed off that they play at the Crest Center. You've got students who are pissed off they play at the Rush Center because um, you know it's such a far drive downtown. You got to pay for parking where you can just walk from campus. Um, yeah. You know Green Bay. You know Green Bay. I will say this as an alum, and I, I loved my time at Green Bay, but Green Bay has a little bit of an identity problem anyway because it's it's known as a commuter school. And so yeah, many people they, commute. They, when they built the crest, they built it wrong. They really did. And they're trying to capitalize off of something over at at the rush center um, that they're that they're just not capable of capitalizing off of. It, it's not it's not the same today as when they started um, playing there. They they should have built the crest a little bit bigger so that the boys could play there too. And for a while that was an issue when the Horizon League was not a neutral site tournament, and they played the at the campus sites for mm-hmm. uh, the opening. You know, for really for the whole tournament that was an issue. That's why they had to play at the Rush Center so that they could potentially host Horizon League championship games. Um, you know, like we would have potentially seen in twenty fourteen, but. Um, that is now no longer an issue and really at the time it never really should have been an issue because a lot of schools i mean i don't know if you've ever been to valparaiso indiana justin no but valparaiso has had one of the tiniest gyms in the conference and they just get a waiver from the ncaa it's not hard to do i don't i feel like playing at the crest center is the right fit for for that basketball program where it is now i absolutely agree but then you lose you alienate a certain base of ticket holder you know most of your season ticket holders for that program are guys who had bought tickets you know coming off the runs of the the 90s and the early 2000s they always put the brown county and you're trying to capture that magic from the brown county arena you know from the the dick bennett days yeah and, and that's why and that's really why i say they built the crest wrong because the Crest isn't even as big as the Brown County Arena. Yeah, the Crest, I believe, holds four thousand. I think it's forty-four thousand or four thousand four hundred or something like that. That's perfect size for the boys' basketball program, then. Yeah, I don't get it. But it's it's so far out of where your ticket base is. They want that, you know. It, it's it's one of those things where the men's program. Versus the women's season ticket holders are two totally different groups of alum and groups of community members where the women's 
fan base. Um, it's older. You know, it's people who live on that side of town. And with how they play, they play at 1 o'clock in the afternoon most games. Most of those games, it, you know, it's it's a totally different crowd where the men's games are often kind of like a primetime type game, you know, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock. And it's about, you know, up until a couple years ago, I believe two seasons ago, they didn't even have beer at the women's games on campus. So that was a big thing was beer sales where guys, you know, they'd go get dinner and doozies, B-dubs, whatever in that stadium district. And then they'd head over to the game, have a beer and go to the, you know, watch the Phoenix men. So your fan base is just to two totally different groups and, and causes that part of that issue too, where they want those games there. The students have always wanted the games at the crest because the games are free anyway. But when you have to drive 15 minutes to go to a men's game, and then pay to park and then have to walk, you know, from Lambeau across, you know, Oneida, across the Rush Plaza and all that stuff too, uh, down Armed Forces Drive. It's kind of a, it's a big deterrent to go to games. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, I think I, you know, fully believe that they should play on campus. All of it. Now, are you saying they don't sell beer at the Christian? They didn't until about two, maybe. No, I was still in college when they started. So it's been probably three or four years, but up until 2015, 2016, maybe, they didn't. Hmm. So then there's really, I mean, what are you going to gain and what are you going to lose? Outside of season ticket holders, moving well, into the crest. Hot you. What will, percentage of season ticket holders would not carry their season tickets over to the crest? I in your guesstimate. I I don't even know, and I think part of I you know I kind of maybe lose that that guess just from having been in the radio station for you know the last four seasons and not being going to these games on site. So in that capacity, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that because I haven't seen in person. And granted, you, you know, we had 2020 with the COVID year two that kind of weighs into that. So I, I don't know how to answer that question truthfully. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't know if you lose that much, but I know it's a big concern from their end of year surveys that they always do, too, um, where they, they want the men's team to play down at the Resh. And really... Mm. A lot of what the rush has been kind of built around, granted, you know, it's gamblers hockey is probably the primary thing for the rush center at this point. But, you know, with the, the new LED boards and the new scoreboard, a lot of that is to have that big arena feel for college basketball. Mm -hmm. So in that element, you know, you haven't filled it up in four or five years now. But at the same time, you know, you can have those video boards, you can have those production elements that kind of give it that bigger arena feel and maybe helps with recruiting. I don't know. You would you would like to say that winning would change that, but even when they won, Eric, they haven't, you know, really filled up the rush. I yeah, they really, you know, even in those late you know, those 2014, 2015 teams with Kiefer Sykes and 
Alec Brown, Carrington Love, Jordan Faust, you know, the NCAA tournament team of 20, technically 2016. Um, yeah, they didn't, you know, those games were 3,000, 4,000, you know, the crest would have been jammed packed. But except for, you know, a couple games here and maybe, it, you know, even kind of scheduling has always been kind of rocky because for the last, you know, I remember during college, so frequently the Green Bay home game for UW-Milwaukee was always during winter break. So you missed out there too yeah. with, you know, your big rivalry game where you'd possibly have, you know, you know probably have your biggest student outturn was always during winter break or Thanksgiving. You know, they always have games Thanksgiving weekend and students aren't there. And, you know, you, you get guys for, you know, who don't necessarily go, maybe they don't go deer hunting during those times or, you know, for the Thanksgiving weekend, but you're putting, you know, bigger opponents in that and try to put bigger opponents in those games and you're not landing. You know, I remember 2015 or my freshman year's 2014, 15 season, you had Georgia State come into town, and that was the year they, they went to the NCAA tournament. So you had Kevin mm -hmm. Ware. You had uh, R.J. Hunter. Those guys coming through. It's, it's an interesting argument, and I'd love to talk. To, I think we should have a guest on at some point about uh, some, maybe, maybe a little more knowledgeable, and that has Doug some somewhat deeper into the situation there and you know i'm gonna be honest with you justin i you know and i, I don't want to alienate anybody that i you know work for and all that stuff i don't know if you're gonna get those answers to be honest with you because to this point you know we technically still don't know why link darner got fired three years ago we've had theories yeah. we've had you know it just kind of happened out of nowhere and there wasn't really much follow-up i mean the school kept you know tight-lipped Link kept type lip to probably get his payout, and that was that. <laughs> and it's a very tight-lipped organization for a lot of elements, and you know, in one element I get that, but at the same time, for for our sake, there's got to be transparency. Probably. I mean, with your fans, with your locale, there's got to be transparency. You'd hope so, but yeah. that's also kind of the. You know, maybe that's part of the detriment of having a, you know, a mid-major that's so, you know, that's in the same market as the Green Bay Packers. You're not mm -hmm. going to get that coverage. You know, even, you I mean, look at where we are here, and granted, we're, we're not in Milwaukee, but Marquette doesn't get the same coverage that the Badgers do anywhere. If you're not the Badgers, you don't have that red, red and white and that motion W, does it really matter? Yeah, I don't I think... You get around. I think if you get around to it and you win here, you're gonna get, you're gonna get a backing. I really do. I if, hope so. If you win like the, if you win like the girls do, and you, you're on the boys' side here, I think you're really gonna get a following. And maybe that's another side of it too, as to you know, I, I we've talked way more about the Phoenix than I planned on, but I, you know, maybe yeah, that's no that's part of it too, of just the you know, with how successful the women's program is. Does it get overshadowed in those priority meetings and in all those other things? You know, you look at the two different, um, and, you know, part of it is just because they haven't won in the last few years. But you look at where these programs are playing their off or their their quote unquote preseason tournaments. The Green Bay women were playing SMU and Oklahoma State, and 
regularly get multiple Power 5 conference wins a year, the men are lucky if they play a Power 5 opponent in a year. They'll play maybe one or two. Yeah. And the women the women are yeah. winning in Power 5 games. The men are lucky to play them. Yeah. That's a great point. That really is a great point. And again, part of that is just reputation and the fact that they succeed and that they, you know, that they've earned that right to be in those conversations. I mean, shit. I remember at one point in college, Green Bay played UConn. The Green Bay women mm-hmm. played UConn. They've played Notre Dame multiple times and hung with Notre Dame. And the Green Bay men, yeah. I mean, they they played, I believe, two Power Fives this year, two two power two true Power Fives between Minnesota and and Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I feel like I may be missing one, but I I maybe they played three. I I don't I don't know, off the top of my head, but I'm not too far off base there. And like I said, it's kind of a chicken well, and the duck not. taste or chicken and the egg kind of situation. Does winning, you know, where the women are. They've earned that reputation to play those teams, but they're also playing those teams every year, and you know you can recruit based on that. <laughs> it, it, it's a program that's in flux. There are questions that need to be answered. Um, what is going on, and and do do we really think that Will Ryan can be the guy to turn it around? There's a lot of questions. We could do a whole episode on these guys, Eric. We really could. And, you know, Will Ryan is such, you know, we've talked about this a couple of week or a couple episodes ago when we did our State of the State, uh, where, you know, we we're talking about how, how powerful the in-state recruiting has been. But when you look at all these guys who've transferred out, Steber, Claflin, now Kamari, so many of these in-state guys are also leaving, but at the same time, did maybe too much focus get put into in-state recruiting where the talent wasn't there? I mean, specifically with Claflin and Steber, the talent was just wasn't necessarily D1, or at least, you know, for Green-based fit. So did we, did we put too much focus on that recruiting in-state versus finding talent where you need to find talent? That's a great question. It really is. Uh, I thought when they signed Steber and Claflin, I thought those were big question marks, and maybe just just guys that could fill out the the edge of the roster, and and that's okay if the if that's what those guys are, you know, um, nine, ten, eleven on uh, on your roster that that will fill out the the scholarship portion of that, but. Never, ever did you think that they were going to be uh, options two or three or even four within your program. So I think that in and maybe they're over justifying themselves. Well, you know, ironically, though, they could get those bigger options. Those two guys are both Link Darner guys, too. So I, right. you know, I don't want to necessarily put that on on Will Ryan. But at the same time, they both they both stayed for Will Ryan too, so you know who knows what they each would have been in that that offense they were recruited for. But at the same time, you know I don't put too much stock in that either because, you know, you if you're a successful basketball player, you should be able to play any system. I think personally, and maybe you're, 
Yeah. Maybe as Run a coach, I'm bra. wrong. Run what you bra. I mean, the coach has to, to coach to his personnel a bit too. So. Yeah, absolutely. So That's anyway, a uh, couple other sides we can go. You know, we we talked enough college basketball here. We really took a yeah. detour, but I, I think it was a great conversation to have and one that we'll definitely have to kind of follow up on here as the offseason goes along. Um, but I, I do want to talk, you know, a little bit here, take a moment to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks as they are now officially locked into the three seed. Their playoffs will start. They're starting Sunday, correct, for the Bucks. Yeah. They draw, the they draw the six-seed Chicago Bulls. Uh, one of those teams, kind of the same situation as Cleveland. You know, I know you had mentioned Cleveland earlier. Kind of the same situation. Started off the year very hot, very young, and, and kind of faded down the stretch. And, you know, part of that is just playing against Milwaukee, you know, multiple times a year in the, in, among the most in, in the league, where Milwaukee, just like this show, we ramped up towards the end of the season, and we're kind of, you know, this is where our season starts. We got there. We yeah. found our opponent. We we now it starts. Yeah, and there's and to be honest with you, Eric, there's really not much to talk about with this series. Uh, Milwaukee or uh, Chicago is is a fun young uh, team that's led. Uh, I believe Demar Derozan is their he is. is their big head honcho there. He's had a stellar season for the first third of the season. He was leading the MVP kind of polls that that uh, that take place during the year, um, but they've got Zach Levine, uh, who who's a good young star. Um, they have done a, a a pretty good job in rebuilding it up uh, from the Tom Thibodeau days. So, uh, but as far as what they're going to give the Bucks. In this series, I wouldn't expect much. I would say I would say the Bucks win this uh, in a sweep or or four-one fashion um, and move on relatively ease in, in this series. I would probably I'd have to agree with that. Um, you know, like it's just they end up the three seed, but the Bucks really probably are the hottest team coming into these playoffs and are. You know, you always talk about peaking at the right time. I think they've truly done that. I think they got the – they avoid – they're going to avoid Brooklyn. They, yeah, they would until – that would be the Eastern Conference Finals at best, right? Yeah. I wouldn't – I'd rather I'd rather play the Sixers or the Celtics than Brooklyn. Yeah, absolutely. There's not a player on that. I mean, you could talk all day about Joel Embiid and Jason Tatum. And Jason Tatum, to me, is scarier than Joel Embiid. Um, but I don't want to play Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, period. And a pretty healthy that Kyrie Irving at that. <laughs> yeah, that might be the best eight seed ever or seven seed ever in in the league. I'd agree with that easily. But. Let me tell you something, Eric. Let, let's get this straight right now, okay? Tell me what the difference is between what Kevin Durant did and what LeBron James did. In what sense? What's the difference? In in the super team thing? Yeah. You know, you know what happened? 
Are we, are we still talking about the, the Golden State Kevin Durant, or are we talking about you Nets know what Kevin happens? Durant? Kevin, Dur- Kevin Durant Kevin Durant led his team to the playoffs. Kevin Durant won a playing game. Kevin Durant is the epitome of awesomeness. I wouldn't go LeBron that far. James. Yeah. LeBron James is overrated. Uh, can't do it himself. Come on. He can't do it himself, Eric. He's done. He's washed up. Come on. He should just retire. Ugh. We can't have this conversation. Anyway, this is going to be the opposite of a productive conversation. <laughs> we had such a productive conversation with the Phoenix conversation and the Badgers. Yeah. No, in, and we go reality, straight to this shit. What in reality that that really is kind of what the difference is. Kevin Durant did do a great job throughout the season in putting his team uh, on his back and kind of leading them to to the opportunity to play to be in the playing game. It just shows, though, Eric. It's more to your and Ramsey's point. That this isn't a one superstar league anymore. You can't just get there. You can't even get to the playing game, or you can barely get to the playing games with just one superstar, right? And even if you're lucky to get there, um, you're gonna be you're gonna be hurting very early in the facts of uh, what the playoff is and the teams that you're gonna play. So. Great job by Durant, but you know more or less, you're gonna need a number of stars because you you gotta remember Durant didn't play with a lot of his stars all year long. James Harden, what was there was a crazy stat out there? What over two and a half years or something? There was like what seven, thirteen or seventeen games that Harden and Irving and and Durant all played on the floor at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that speaks to what Durant can do. But, you know, and you're right. LeBron is old and he can't carry a team anymore like that to the playoffs. See, I think that I think that just speaks to something that Ramsey and I had talked about a little bit last week. Uh, with, with truthfully, how... How these two rosters were built, though, too. And, you know, you can say that he you, he can't do it. I think he can if he had to. I think, you know, he was battling some injury there, too, at the end of the year where Kevin Durant was relatively healthy come down the stretch. But what I will say is this is really kind of showing the difference of how these rosters were constructed from day one of the season where, yes, you didn't have... Uh, you know, Harden, he didn't have Kyrie for, you know, the really the whole part of the early season. Then it turned into half, you know, for all your road games, which then turned into, um, you know, having him full time as as COVID restrictions in New York City were what they were. But just to kind of touch on that, then, I mean, they had guys. Uh, um, Seth Curry was an incredible player for them this year. They had guys who filled these roles and played around, you know, the the stars that were playing that given night, and played up to and above expectation. Whereas, you know, you look at the the Lakers construction of their team, where it was 
Wessel or Russell Westbrook doing whatever the hell he was trying to do. You had, you know, games where it was Anthony Davis trying to lead the way, and Anthony Davis has been, you know, back to New Orleans, Anthony Davis, where if you look at him funny, he's hurt. He's a disappointment. There's no doubt about it. There's no other way you could say it. He has been a disappointment since the bubble. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, you know, honestly. And I, I love Anthony Davis. I think it's, you know, partially it's a, he's a disappointment since he shaved his unibrow. I miss the brow. Yeah. Never thought I'd say that, but I miss the brow. Yeah. And then a just, superpower. you know, you look at, you look at the rest of the roster. I, you lose a, a very key role player in Alex Caruso. You know, he went to Chicago and got paid and he played at a very high level mm-hmm. for most of the season. You look at, you know, uh, you, you bring in Malik Monk as your, you know, your, your young guy and, Malik Monk's been kind of a, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, he's been kind of a disappointment for what he was hyped up to be when he was a high school prospect. And that's necessarily not necessarily fair yep. to him because of how much hype he had coming in. That's not him doing that. But that's just the reality of the situation. You look at, you know, Carmelo Anthony, granted, he's coming off the bench. I think Carmelo Anthony had a pretty quietly good year. But he can't be your sixth man. No. You know, I'm looking, you know, Taylor and Horton Tucker had great spurts, but he, he's not going to be your number one guy or some nights your number two guy. <laughs> it, 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 but who was there? I don't know. Like, I'm looking at this roster, Justin, right now. I'm looking at this roster, and I forgot half these guys were on this freaking team. Well, sure. Uh, did you know DJ Augustine was a Laker this year? Or yeah. Avery Bradley? Yeah. Dwight, I did. Dwight I Howard? really did. But if you look at look at New Jersey or uh, Brooklyn's roster. Any, I mean, one guy coming off the bench, Andre Drummond. Yeah. Really? You know? It ain't much different. Well, that's why they were the seven. I mean, they they snuck in as a seven seed, and they've gotten hot, and they've gotten their superstars back. That's the reality of the situation. But they they put themselves in a good enough spot where the Lakers didn't put themselves in a good enough spot. That I mean, it's it's about that's being good enough. Have, it's not that either team had, was great. That's because they had a superstar that could carry the team. Kyrie Irving. <laughs> for half of the year at away games well and I think this also kind of shows and this is not a barb at LeBron I think this is truthfully a barb at Russell Westbrook if anything but this shows what cutting out the cancer of that locker room can be you know you get rid of Harden and and the whole situation that was going on there and you know no, but it's not like Westbrook was a cancer Oh, he big time was, especially at the end of the season during this, this no, stretch run. No, big no, time was. No, 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 no. Westbrook himself was not a cancer. It was the media that portrayed his play as a cancer. Because it is. That's not a cancer. The guy is not a cancer in the locker room. The guy is not a cancer in the locker room. The media is the cancer. 
I don't know if I can agree with that. Russell Westbrook is one of the most inefficient players of all time. That is factual. Yeah, but it's not like they didn't know what they were getting. No, and I agree. And that's that's also partially on on the front office of the Lakers. And I I, I, I wholeheartedly and I said that last week. That was my that was my nugget of the week last week. Was you can't bring a guy like that in when with how the roster was constructed. This was not a this was the worst case scenario for a guy like Russell Westbrook to go play to. Because with how LeBron plays, where he's truthfully a point guard, you know, a point forward, whatever you want to call it, he's still ball dominant, but he's never ah, Jesus Christ, Devin. Um but he's never been that on ball guy like that. You know, where he's he's able to I mean he creates his own offense, sure. But he's never been you know, the guy to to spot up and shoot. You know, he's that's not his role. He slashes and he's ball dominant. You can't have two of those kind of same types of superstars in the court at the same time. And granted, LeBron is incredibly efficient with his minutes where Westbrook isn't. But that just shows on, you know, again, you know, nothing that they didn't know. They they had to have known, you know, right? So I, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, there that was just it was just I think it was doomed to fail. Really, and I know that was a concern the second they brought him in. I hated the signing from the beginning or the trade. I don't even remember how he got acquired at this point because it was such a shit show. But it was doomed to fail. I thought that from the beginning. I thought that was the worst possible case for the Lakers was to have him on their starting five. And I will say I do I do revert to I do think that he was part of the problem where when you're creating a divide where guys like, you know, he doesn't want to be benched at the end of the game because he's not playing well and causes issues. You've got guys like Carmelo Anthony, you know, talking to them or not talking to the media. He's getting asked these questions, but he's saying, you know, you've got to do what's for the team. And he had no issue coming off the bench. He had no issue sitting in minutes where he's not, you know, going to have a positive impact and plays, you know, doesn't play a significant role. You've got to be, you know, you said about Christian Yelich, you've got to come to, you know, the realization that put the ego aside and that you aren't the best fit for that part of the game. And until the day that he does that, whether that be in L.A., I've seen rumors of him being traded now to the Pacers. Wherever that stop for him, wherever he's playing in 2022-2023 season, I really hope he finds that realization that he's not the same guy he was three, four years ago. And even at that point, you know, to be honest, as an analyst... I don't think he was that good at that time either. He was built to succeed at that time. But, you know, take a, say what you will about those times, you know, that 2018-17 that run, you know, whatever. But you really, as an, as an athlete, I think you have to have that moment where you put the ego aside if you really care about winning. If you don't care about winning, then fuck it. Do what you got to do. That's a good point. I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I really don't. That's good. I, I don't really have much to add to it either, Eric. <laughs> I, I think you nailed it all in the head. <laughs> that was pretty good. Thank you. I do what I can. So with that, let's use that as a nice jumping point here. Do you want to talk USFL or do you want to talk Packers? We're going to talk football here, Justin. We're going to switch gears here a little bit. But which Let, Let's do you go, go to the USFL. 
All right, we got to Let's open talk it. about the USFL. I want to talk about one thing, and I mentioned this in the uh, in the group chat off air. What do you think about their new color commentator, Eric? I think it's going to be a success. I think he's going to. I think he's really going to show the smarts of what football is. Do you want to elaborate on this a little bit, Eric? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll introduce it for our listeners who don't know. So Jason Garrett, former eight and eight Cowboys coach and and uh, multiple time eight and eight Cowboys coach, the the puppet of Jerry Jones for a number of years, and then the um, the failed offensive coordinator in or was he even the coordinator. Yeah, for, them. for New York. Yeah, for the, the Giants. Giants. Yeah. I didn't know if he actually was a coordinator or not, but the failed offensive coordinator who could no longer be the puppet um, for, Jason, or for Jerry Jones will be serving uh, as the main color commentator for the USFL. And I think that's... I, I, I don't know how I feel about that because, you know, truthfully, I, I haven't paid enough attention to where I think of him as a, as a speaker and where I, you know, I don't know where he's going to be um, TV wise from that perspective and how he's going to present on, on TV. But what I will say yeah. is I think we're seeing a very good trend to baseball or to sports as a whole, but specifically, I mean, we saw it with the Manning cast now with baseball with the A-Rod cast, but I think we're seeing a very healthy trend of kind of getting some of the old guard um, color commentators out of the way and getting guys who are more recently in the sport. We saw really Tony Romo was the starting of that trend. And, you know, I think that's a very good thing for the world of sports as a whole. Um, You know, we saw it where, you know, with guy, you know, we've seen kind of intermittent success with guys. You know, we talked about with NASCAR, with Danica Patrick, now Chad Knauss on the broadcast. We've seen um, Clinton Boyer hasn't necessarily found his his stride with it yet. We've seen, you know, like Greg Olson necessarily hasn't been on that same level of Tony Romo. But it makes up a lot for you know where we've you know you talk about what you want about Troy Aikman and and where you stand on his uh, him as a broadcaster. But Troy Aikman's been removed from playing for 20-some years now. And the culture of the NFL, the, you know, basically everything about the NFL has changed in that 20 years. How the games played, how the meetings go. It's totally night and day different than what he was in. So how much success does he, you know, how much does he really know about the insight? He can talk X's and O's. You know, any of these guys can talk X's and O's at the grand scheme of things. Because they know enough to, you know, to be successful there. But where, where does that put for how you per- portray it? And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think um, that Troy Aikman's a shining example of that anymore. I think he's outdated. I, I really, at this point, I think um, even maybe Chris Collinsworth is trending that way. And everyone loves Chris Collinsworth and the chair slide and this, that, and the other thing. But I think he's trending that way towards, towards outdated too. Yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if I like Chris Collinsworth all that much. 
I mean, smart guy yes. brings a lot to a broad. He's he's an excellent broadcaster in the sense of he has the energy. He I think he portrays his his knowledge very well. But I don't know if he's yeah. I don't know if he knows enough about the current game. And, and you know they get to they sit all week with you know they talk with these all the research they do and they they do do a lot of research. You know I've been in you know I've seen their media guides. I've seen what goes into a broadcast from that perspective of, you know, things. But do they know enough about what's going on currently? So Jason Garrett, I think, is an interesting get. I'm really curious on where he he falls into the broadcast role and how, you know, how well he can, I guess, kind of dumb it down in a sense. I don't know if that's necessarily the right way to yeah. phrase it, but I think it truthfully I think is. Really, I think he's really, yeah, I think he's really going to break it down, uh, Quite well, I, I, you know, I don't know what his demeanor is going to be like. He doesn't, he doesn't put off a, a fun-loving demeanor. Um, but you know, he he's, he might not be in coach mode either. Yeah, and and but you know, as a former quarterback who really studied the game, I forget how many years he was the backup quarterback to Troy Aikman. Um, you know, I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna be really successful at it. I think it'll probably lead him to a bigger gig. Uh, it's a great opening. I'm surprised that we're not hearing something about uh, a guy like Sean Payton becoming uh, an analyst, or you know, just some other uh, coach that has really tried to you know step away. Just w- with how crazy the money is for being a broadcaster right now. I mean, Tony Romo's getting what 19, 19 million to 17 or $19 million a year mm-hmm. to do one game a week. It's like, that's pretty, that's, you know, no coach is getting that. Right. You know, and they're doing a hell of a lot more work than what a broadcaster's doing. So I'm, I'm surprised. <clears throat> I'm surprised that, you know, some of these coaches that really break down film, really break down the X's and O's of, of the game and and can kind of be like what Tony Romo does and tell you what the play is going to be before the actual play happens. Um, I'm surprised that doesn't that hasn't happened far more often than it than it has. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm really excited. I'm really excited for the product that I think we're going to get. Um and see where this goes is the USFL is in a really interesting spot where we've seen so many of these quote unquote spring football leagues fizzle out over the last few years. Yeah. But if they can truly, you know, and I think part of it is that a lot of these leagues have tried to be a true alternative instead of kind of embracing, you know, where, the game is right now or where, you know, how much of a stranglehold the NFL is going to have. And that this is truly going to be a secondary game or a secondary league. And I think the USFL to this Uh point has kind of painted that very well. Yeah. I think I, I just don't get it. And I've said this before on our podcast, when we were talking about the XFL, I just don't get how you think you can compete 
with the NFL, but not use the NFL's model, right? Look at every team in the NFL besides one, Green Bay, has has one thing. A billionaire owner? That is a, a billionaire owner, right? A billionaire owner that can support that one franchise. And when you're talking about a league like a startup like USFL, like I don't get how you can't go into this thing. Like I forget what it is, right? I think uh, The Rock and his group that bought the XFL, it was like $30 million they bought it for, right? Mm-hmm. There's eight teams. How how in the world can can we throw a $30 million investment into this, then start up a whole nother sack of money to make sure that this thing goes off? Why Why wouldn't they just start diving into selling these franchises as entities to a billionaire owner, like it's a business, which is what a football league is, is a business. NBA has single league or single owners. MLB has, you know, single owners. All these major sports have single owners and, and they're successful. I do not get how, when we do these startup leagues, how we can't, figure that part of this out well sell the, off correct me if i'm wrong but didn't the aaf a couple of years ago try that too and didn't work and no. the the 2020 xfl had that and it didn't work had what single owners i believe that and I know, i'm pretty sure the aaf did the american I alliance of I, football or whatever the hell I it was i do not think so i do not think so i don't think so I really, I, I really don't think so. Because you would have a, a, you would have an entity. You would have something to sell. Could be. And it wouldn't be so. It wouldn't be so much on the league to make sure that this thing goes right. It's more on the league to, to market it to, to. Uh, uh, adjudicate it, that type of thing. Not make sure that every make sure that we're not losing money in every part of it. Because then, then it's one entity, right? If that owner doesn't, it, is it good at running a football program or a, a football franchise? That owner could sell his entity to somebody, or he could hire people. Or he could dive money into his franchise, right? Why do the you know why do the Jaguars or why have the Jaguars suck so long? Because they never stuck money into it, right? Why mm-hmm. has Dallas been Dallas? Because or why is Dallas one of the most uh, the richest franchise in, in in all of the world? Because they stick money into it. Jerry Jones built himself a billion dollar. Stadium, he owns it. Yeah, right? like the, I don't get how this doesn't make sense. To I don't understand how, in a business sense, 
we are depending on one entity to run eight other entities um, to, to see if it's going to make a go of it. Yeah, that that's an excellent point, Justin. I I gotta say this. I am very surprised that the that the XFL and really the AAF a few years ago, and I, I get that the XFL kind of ultimately failed due to COVID. I think it was on an okay footing, but I'm really surprised that these leagues haven't stuck around as much as you'd think they would. Maybe it's part of that, that you're talking about, but they I mean they, they really had everything in place. They have had great TV deals for all intents and purposes. They've had great TV deals, whether yeah. it be CBS and you know the, the the affiliate Turner networks from there, um, with the AAF and ESPN and Fox having the the XFL as of late. I, I'm really surprised. At the same time I'm not though, because there could be any number of of reasons that you know again the xfl ultimately failed due to to covid um so maybe it's not fair to necessarily put it in that same that same conversation but it it definitely is concerning i guess in that aspect but i I, at the same time how much of that falls into i mean i guess is it playing in the right spot is it are we too far removed from football are we right at the same good spot to start football back up again you know, the the last two leagues, the XFL and that AAF, they started so close to February, you know, right after the Super Bowl. I think the AAF was a week after, maybe two weeks after, and the XFL was right around that same time too. And maybe credit to this version of the USFL where they have been, you know, we're basically two months out from the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm curious on what the impact of that has been. Is it football fatigue for even, you know, maybe you watch the first week of the startup, but then is it football fatigue from, you know, watching 16 regular season games or 17 now and and having, you know, the playoffs and the Super Bowl? Is it, you know, should they start up the week after and just kind of ride the train? I don't know. But I, I definitely I definitely agree with you that the single owner thing is odd. And I, I think that's a big reason that, the AAF at the very least failed if it did. You know, if that was the case in their league. Yeah, I, I don't. I just it, the business model. The NFL is not secretive about their business model, right? They're this multi-billion-dollar-year conglomerate that is not scared to push its weight around. They are not shy in sharing their methods, right? You have a collective bargaining agreement with the players. The players have a say. Mm -hmm. You have owners that are making the money. Whether they're making the money or they're not, they own the franchise. They they decide. Right. there's, There's a whole grand scheme of how the model should work. And sure, it doesn't happen overnight, but in today's age, it can happen a lot faster than when it did for the NFL, which started in the 60s, right? So, like, let's let, let's stop being stupid about this thing. I'm all for another league, but let's stop being stupid about this thing and let, let, sell this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, you know, I think really is interesting to think about with this in perspective is... To what degree 
would official NFL affiliation actually be beneficial? You know, I know that we had what well, the AAF was very prevalent for this, where they kind of had guys that they were allowed to play with on a, you know, on they allowed their like their affiliate contracts, not direct affiliates at the time, but they kind of had different teams that they could pick from their rosters and pick those guys on futures contracts or whatever. I'm curious on, you know, first of all, if the NFL even has interest in that, I can't imagine they wouldn't. I did hear something about that with the XFL and the NFL having interest in, in becoming a development league for the NFL. But I'm really surprised, you know, we've had, we've had the comeback of the XFL. This will be the second time. Granted, again, you know, COVID really, you know, was a big to do about that one failing the second time. I think, I really think they would have been okay if it wasn't for COVID. But the AAF, I really am surprised. Again, like I said, that just it didn't. They had that, you know, that they could have had in their back pocket, and I'm, I'm really surprised that they didn't really go with that and run that farther. Well, I think I think there's a. Uh, there, there are some interesting things. I think if you capitalize on on what the World League was and they had the affiliation with players that played on certain teams and you limited it to, you know, this team gets, you know, if you have eight teams that are in the the whole shebang, right? Four teams to a league or four teams to 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 a a team in in the uh, XFL or the uh, USFL, right? Mm-hmm. Four four teams are affiliated to that. You limited to from first year fifth first year players that um, didn't garner enough time to whatever to fifth round picks and back and and they play your preseason games like or or it's up to the you know you you could use one of these development leagues. Hey, look, we want to get rid of the. There's no secret that the NFL wants to get rid of the the preseason, right? Right. Let's start limiting the preseason. But why can't this, why can't we serve this development league as a preseason for some of these guys that are roster bubble guys? No, absolutely. And that's that's part of it I think too where you can look at um some of these different options out there. you know like you said, you know, look at that I think you have to expand it a little bit to more than just first year guys, but I think you can kind of use it as you had to have the the way that the practice squads used to have to be, where a certain percent you had to have a certain amount of service time before you were really even truly yeah. eligible. Yeah, like the World League, like the the best part of the World League is when you'd wake up on Saturday. You're probably even too young to even watch the the Europe League, the NFL Europe or even, whatever it was. Yeah. I yeah. remember it very vaguely. I don't remember. I don't think I ever watched on TV, but I remember it on Madden. You'd wake up at you'd wake up on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, springtime or whenever whenever they played. I can't even remember. But you'd watch the game, and on the back of the helmet, they had the affiliation of which NFL team they played for on the back of the helmet that they played that they that they played for with the the Europe team. It was. Uh, that that was like, it, it sounds so stupid, but oh well, that guy that guy is a, a linebacker for the Green Bay Packers, right? He he has a chance to make that. 
the Europe League was semi-successful for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say almost as 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 good as the run of um, the USFL when the original Donald Trump one. sunk it. Yeah. So I don't. I I don't. I think I think there's so many ways they could go about this, but in true American fashion. They keep beating their head against the wall. The, these multi-millionaires, billionaires, keep beating their heads against the wall and keep trying the same fashion of doing this business model and just making a minor tweet. Oh, we're going to be extreme. We're going to change the kickoff rules. We're going to try to set ourselves differently that way, but not follow the actual model that has proven to work in multiple American uh, sports leagues. It doesn't make sense. It just, these ultimately will probably fail, Eric. You think so? I I really do. They're not going to follow. It's too much. It's, It's just too much for one entity to support eight franchises. To even start off with eight franchises. I would agree with that. I think that is a big ask. Now, Justin, you know, we wouldn't be this show, and unfortunately I can't find betting odds here, but uh, week one, we have four games obviously going on uh, between Saturday and Sunday. So I could not tell you any of these, you know, most of these rosters, but we're going to pick a couple games here. And these will not go towards our official stats because Ramsey's not here. But we have the new the New Jersey Generals versus the Birmingham Stallions on Saturday to kick things off. Prime time right. Saturday night. So You have no roster information on these guys. I, I truthfully do not. Okay. I'm trying to remember. I think I'm gonna take would you say New Jersey Generals? The New Jersey Generals, that's correct. I think I'm gonna take the Generals. All right, and I, I do. I let me. They are. Co- I can tell you this. They are coached by Mike Riley. Ooh, and that's bad news. Let me take a look. I'm just kind of scrambling here for any information I can. It's kind of a weird you. fit. That's kind of a Riley is a West Coast guy. Uh, notable player here for them from the C- the CBS Sports article is running back Mike Weber from Ohio State. Mm, that sounded very good, notable. They got to have a good quarterback. Uh, not oh, good enough to make the... Might be a guy from... Uh, oh, I think they have... Do they have the guy from uh, Richmond? The Richmond Spiders? Not DeLuca in this article. I, I have like no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. I'm going to look it up. You Okay, you. who are you picking? Well, for the sake of being different, so we have some little fun with this, I'm going to go with the Birmingham Stallions. They are led by... Uh, Skip Holtz, uh, some notable players from the CBS article that I can find. Uh, let's see, the Stallions. They have linebacker, inside linebacker Scooby Wright leading their defense. Yeah, he was, he was, he's a big one, wasn't he? And that's their most notable player from this uh, this this piece here. So I will, like I said, just to be a little different, that's where I'm going to go. Uh, game two, the Houston hey. Gamblers versus the Michigan Panthers. 
Oh, I'm taking Michigan Panthers. I'm also taking Michigan Panthers in this one. Jeff Fisher, Shea Patterson, names I've heard of. Let's do it. Yeah. Jamon Moore. That name ring a bell? It very much rings a bell, and I, I can't tell you as to He's why it does. wide receiver for the for the for the New Jersey Generals. Isn't Jamon Moore was a uh He's a former, former Packer. Packer. Didn't they pick him in pick him in the fourth round? He was in the like same that? draft. He was uh, he was the top draft of those receivers with EQ and MVS, who are no longer here either. But uh Jamon could never never quite get it right with the uh Within the NFL, mm. as uh, uh, by comparison to the other two, even. Who you said the you who Michigan Panthers and who the Houston Gamblers. All right, let's go through the Houston Gamblers. Here he is co- they are coached by Kevin Sumlin. Uh, some notable Ooh. players for the Gamblers. Uh, let's see. They have. Let's go through. I have their roster right here. Clayton Thorson. If you know who Clayton Thorson is, he was a former quarterback for Northwestern. Nope. Don't remember him. Mm. Their most notable player, the CBS article that I have, Justin, is... Will Likely. Offensive tackle Avery Genesee, who was one of the XFL's best linemen. In PJ and was an integral role in PJ Walker's success. Yeah, there's not a lot. Yeah, there he is. It's only six four. Tyler Higby. That name I remember. He's a lineman. Mm-hmm. All right. Game three. Next game. The Philadelphia Stars versus the New Orleans Breakers. New Orleans Breakers are coached Ooh. by Coach Larry Fedora. And the Philadelphia Stars are coached by Bart Andrews. All right. Let me let me just I'm going through. The quarterback The quarterback for the Stars is Brian Scott. Brian Scott. From looks like uh California like Occidental College. He threw seventy seven touchdowns yeah. and twenty two interceptions. He was Yeah, he he had a yeah. He, he was a superstar. I remember reading about that dude. Uh, they also have Texas San Antonio linebacker Jordan. He won Moore. the equivalent to the Heisman, right? I believe so. Uh, Brennan Eagles at wide receiver. Johnny Dixon. I'm with the stars. Give me the stars. Ooh. Hey, you remember Jonathan Adams? Very loose. I was really. I was very high on him last year coming out of Arkansas State. Not, He's on New Orleans. Yeah, very He's loosely. He's on Arkansas State. And then the last game we're going to pick here, Justin. I, I, did you make an official pick? I'm going with the Stars. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the Breakers. And the Tampa Bay Bandits versus the Pittsburgh Maulers. Maul, the Maulers are coached by Kirby Wilson. The Bandits by Todd Haley. I'm going bandits on this one. Or the Maulers. I'm going they've got Garrett Groshek on the Maulers. Kyle Aletta. Jordan Love's white brother, Josh Love. 
is a quarterback. I, I wouldn't. I, would, I don't think that's the case. But I'm not gonna touch that one. Uh, the <laughs> Bandits have Jordan Tamoa from Houston. With or Carlo he, Kemp. He had excuse me. He had played with the Houston Texans, uh, but he had played college. Olive Sagapalo. You know Olive Sagapalo. I do. He's on the Maulers. I'm I'm going Maulers because they've got. Give me the Maulers. Yeah, Go they've Badgers. got they've got Wisconsin history. This this show, but they got John Dietzen. Yeah. This show is now a, a Pittsburgh Maulers show. I love it. I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit follow on these sons of guns. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so Justin, we'll just uh, you know we'll we'll go real quick here because we're gonna talk very heavy Packers draft next week. I know we had talked about my mock draft and we talked about some of the good and the bad, but I just want to kind of follow up with you know at this point. Well, again, like I said, we'll we'll spend pretty heavy on this next week, but from where we are right now, you know, three weeks away from the draft, basically. Is there anything, you know, any other big draft wants? I know with the, you know, obviously we're talking quarter or wide receiver, not quarterback. We don't want a quarterback, but uh, is there anything that you think that's a very underrated need, the most underrated need for this team right now? Ooh, I think there's depth at middle linebacker. I think is probably the most underutilized, under talked about. Um, conversation that's out there. I that's why I really liked your pick of Leo Chanel. I think there's probably there's not. I think there's maybe one three down middle linebacker that would fit the Packers' need in a first round aspect, and that's Nicobe Dean out of Georgia. Um, but you know we've talked extensively about how. Leo Chanel is a great two down. He hasn't really gotten to to show his his versatility uh, in the past past game, but that depth would be okay. But I think I think what I'm going to tell you here um, is it might shock you, and it might not make uh, Green Bay fans. Um, very happy, but I think there's two. There, actually, there's two things that I think. Obviously, drafting a safety is going to be a big one too. A, a third safety. Um, maybe they're looking at the fact that they might have to to look at the future without Adrian Amos. Both Savage, Savage, and Amos are up for contract next year. Um, so that that might be a a dire need. Uh, the there has been some mocks that have uh, forecasted the the Georgia safety Lewis scene to to uh, Green Bay, and that might that is a very real possibility. But the one I'm really going to shock you with, Eric, and this is and this isn't a necessarily one that's going to be a uh, first, second, third round kind of uh, pick. But uh, third string running back, uh, I I know that everybody's uh, very high on Kylan Hill and what he offers us coming out of Mississippi State last year. Um, but when you come off an ACL, 
Yeah, that leaves question marks, right? That Absolutely. leaves question marks all all over the all over the field, and and I don't think that there's a argument anymore that Green Bay is fully uh, changing their offensive philosophy. They're dynamic. Um, they're moving more into a run-heavy uh, offense. That if you could draft more and and keep pounding out talent um, at that level, you should do it and and bring in a guy to compete with Kylan now. Um, you gotta remember he was a late round pick too, so. He, he was a good steal there. He, he was a very good steal there, but gotta have he's the guy's gotta compete, you know. And I'm not talking with undrafted free agents. You got lots of picks that you can gamble with here to to bring in some serious talent, even if it's a gadget guy. Um, at that point, I also like would would like to see uh, us go back to the the. the the way that Ron Wolf used to do it, draft draft guys late, develop them, and trade them for a higher pick uh, as quarterbacks. You know, you pick up a guy. I know, I know, we joked earlier, but if you could pick up a guy like Jack Cohn, and he and he's your third string guy, and uh, maybe a a practice squad guy, and he could develop into a solid backup somewhere. You draft him in the sixth or seventh round. And, you know, in, in three years or four years, you feel he's had a couple of good preseasons. You feel comfortable enough to uh, where a team can trade a, a, a third or a fourth or maybe even a fifth. If you're winning somewhere around there, then, you know, I'd like to see them start doing that again, too. For To draft a guy like Jack Cohen, would you have to trade Jordan Love in your mind? No, no. No. No, I don't. Who's going to pick him up? Really? I mean. That's, that's fair. I was just curious. It's a three, four-year project guy, like Kurt Benkert. Mm-hmm. But, again, at the end of it, don't waste a pick. If you can, if you, can you know, let's not waste a pick. I don't want us to waste a pick on a punter. I don't want us to waste a pick on a long snapper. Even though those are semi-important positions, we could get those in in the undrafted market, right? You'd think so. You'd hope I'd so, say, right? Yeah, I, I'd say. You know, look if there's that if there's that offensive lineman that you're super high on. Okay, let's do it. If there's that defensive tackle that you think can beat out. Whoever, Tyler Lancaster, okay. But why not gamble on a quarterback? I, I, you know, that's my. We're 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 good at a, a lot of a lot of areas, but you know, the Packers have been drafted for the future instead of necessarily the now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna shock you, and maybe this isn't too much of a shock in the grand scheme, but you laid out a lot of good kind of shock or upset or under you know underappreciated type picks that they should target my sneaky pick i think you and they've kind of failed at this in the last couple of years so I, I maybe i don't want to see one get drafted but 
I want to say tight end get drafted relatively early on. Yeah. Because, you know, we talk yeah. about salary cap hell. We talk about where this team is. You know, we have jo- Josiah DeGuara, who, I mean, he played a good, he had a good role in this team um, in year two. But he plays that H-back role. He's not like a true, you know, split him out, block kind of guy. You've got Mercedes Lewis, who is a true, I mean, he's he's can catch balls. He, you know, it's not outside the realm of of possibility, but he is primarily a six lineman a lot of times who occasionally will catch a pass, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then you got Robert Tunyon who's coming off injury and, uh, and a, a very significant injury who eventually he's going to either get expensive where you're not going to be able to keep putting him on a one year tender deal or he's going to you're either going to have to pay him or let him go. So you need to find that kind of dual threat, true both tight end. that I think they they wanted with Jay Sternberger, where he never was, that they have with Tunyon, and that they don't really have with DeGuara or Dominique Daphne or insert name of random guy here. I think that's a position that I would like to see them go go in on maybe in the third round. I don't know if you can go, you know, I don't know if the fifth round is the right spot for that, but either. I would totally agree. I bet you, I wouldn't even be, I, w- I wouldn't even be disappointed if it was higher. Really? Yeah. If you I use one of your two seconds, if you can get one of your two def- seconds to be one of them too. I mean, I, Depending on who's available, and I, you know, haven't seen the big boards out there, and you know, actually, as I'm reading this mock draft, I believe this is. I have to. I want to make sure I give credit to credit where credit's due. Uh, Jordan Reeds from ESPN Plus, his mock draft does have the Packers going tight end in the third round. It was the. Uh, just get, make sure I again give credit proper credit where credit is due. At pick ninety. Nope, that was their their second second round pick. My apologies. Um, with the, their second of two second round picks, it was Terry McBride from Colorado State. Trey McBride. Trey McBride, sorry, yes. Went slightly dyslexic there for half a second. He, he was, he won the whatever, what is it? Uh, God, I can't remember what the, whatever award it is for best tight end in the country. The Jake Ferguson Award. No, I'm kidding. Well, Jake Ferguson wouldn't be a bad guy either. No, he wouldn't it's not be. Not necessarily fast, but gets open, finds holes and gaps. Yeah, in zones, be okay with that. Catches with his hands. Yes, sir. So with that, we can wrap up the show with what we always do, Justin. What are you most rooting for in the upcoming week? I am rooting for. Eric, I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for me. I'm rooting for everybody. I'm rooting for all of our listeners to have a great Easter weekend. Enjoy it. Enjoy your family time. Enjoy whatever meal you're going to have. Enjoy the the drinks and the banter and the laughter that goes along with it. I know I'm going to. Um, So really just short and sweet, Eric. I'm, I'm rooting for everybody to have a great Easter weekend. Well, that's very nice of you, Justin. I'm going to go kind of along the same route um, with that as well. You know, obviously, uh, you know, have a happy, safe, happy Easter. Hippity hoppity. 
Easter's on its way. But also, just to keep it with the sports aspect here, I am very excited to be back at American Family Field and be back uh, with the Brewers faithful. And hopefully they don't, I mean, they do end up getting the win tonight to go back to three and three. A little dicey in the eighth inning. They gave up two to tie the game before they rallied in the bottom or the top of the ninth. Uh, so Corbin Burns does not get the win for his excellent performance. And Devin Williams was on the hook for part of that game too and, and kind of blows the win. But I will say, very excited to be back and to watch our Milwaukee Brewers, Justin. Well, I know it's your thing, Eric, so I'm not going to ruin it for you. Yeah, early I season baseball, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, don't don't ruin it, Justin. We'll fight about this. No, oh, I hope you have a great time down there, my friend. And you know what else I'm rooting for? I'm rooting for Ramsey. I, I believe he is going to be on vacation coming up here, so I don't I don't know if he'll be with us next week. But I am rooting for him to have a great time at Bristol Dirt when he gets down there. Wait a second. He's going to Bristol Dirt? I believe he is. I am pretty confident in that. Yeah. Wow. He did that last year, too. He did. Well, this is a night race, right? I believe it is this year. Hmm. All right. So with well, that, have a good time, Ramsey. Yeah, you know you're not he's here. listening to it on the way down. He probably won't. Let's be real. <laughs> Some love that this guy us. gives us, you know. Yeah, he doesn't even show up. Doesn't listen to <laughs> us. What All a, right. What a jerk. Nuggie, last second Nuggie. All right. Nuggie. Anyway, for Ramsey, who's not here, for Justin, who was here. Excellent episode, buddy. Talk to you next week with Mason Sprangers, who will be joining us to talk NFL draft and Packers draft. We'll talk with Mason next week. I'm Eric. Episode 69 is in the books. We're out. See you. Salute.